Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. I'm Jake, and I'm Nicole and I, uh, we just get the great privilege of leading this church, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, here's my prayer for you if you're new to church, newish to church, newer to church, um, uh, that you would be able to see yourself planted and thriving in this community. Uh, and that you would have a vision of uh, making heaps of friends and God blessing you and experiencing all of God's best for your life. And uh, we're, we're local church people. We believe in the power of the local church. The local church changed Nicole and I's lives, set us on the trajectory that we're on now. And uh, that's been the story of countless people in our community here in Highland Park, down in the South Bay as well. And so I just pray that you would, not only that this place would feel like home, but these people would feel like family. And that you would get a sense that God's brought you for a purpose here today, that you're not here on accident, uh, but that God actually has a plan in, in bringing you to this gathering this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, today we're uh, wrapping up our Christmas series called Hope is Living. And uh, the idea for this series was to take promises that God gives us in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and uh, talk about how Jesus fulfills these promises. And because Jesus fulfills the promises of God, that means that you and I are actually never without hope. I don't know if you know this, but our world is in, in constant need of hope right now. Things all the time feel uh, quite hopeless for people. But with Christ, our hope is always living. And our theme verse for uh, this series has been 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. Why don't you guys put that up on the screen for me. The verse says this. This is the Apostle Paul uh, writing to uh, a church community in the ancient Roman city of uh, Corinth. And uh, he wants to encourage them about what we have in Christ Jesus. And so he says these words, that all the promises, everyone say all. all. Yeah, say it again, say all. all. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is in Christ Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that you and I utter, declare our amen to God for his glory. If you're ever looking for like the shortest presentation of the gospel in all the Bible, that's it right there. In one simple verse, you get the entire gospel that every single one of God's promises, hundreds of God's promises in the scriptures are yes in Christ Jesus. Not the least of which is the promise of salvation. What's you and I's part? Well, we just look at that and say, amen. That word means true. In other words, we acknowledge the truth that you and I are saved and delivered and redeemed and our lives are given purpose all because not of what we have done, but what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's good news right there. I don't know if you feel like it. Maybe give God a hand clap. That's really awesome. And so specifically throughout this series, we've been looking at promises in a book in the Hebrew Bible called Isaiah and looking at how those promises are yes uh, in Christ Jesus. Isaiah was a Jewish prophet. He was an Israelite prophet that lived about 700 years before Jesus was born as a human into the human story. And like all of the Jewish prophets, he spent a lot of his time warning Israel about uh, the consequences of their sin of their uh, rebellion against God. But the consequences of the sin was not just about like punishment, uh, although Israel was going to undergo some punishment. In fact, in Isaiah 39, Isaiah says to the nation of Israel, he says, because we can't get our act together, 
This nation Babylon is going to come and descend upon us and we're going to get exiled to Babylon. A hundred years later, that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel historically. As I prophesied that a hundred years before that took place. But more than just uh, consequences for sin being punishment, Isaiah is really talking about how their behavior is forfeiting them from God's purpose in their life. Um, how many know that God like wants to do things through you? Like he has, a, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And so when God, when God sets a standard for you and I, and when God calls us to a certain way of living, and when we don't live that way, it's not just about God getting grumpy at us because we're not doing what he wants. It's more that God has something so much better for us than what we oftentimes settle for, and God wants us to get back into alignment with his plans and his purposes so that he can fulfill something great through our lives. That is the story of Israel. And so today I want to read to you just two verses out of the book of Isaiah Chapter 51, I'm going to move that there because it keeps wobbling. I know it's off-center, so for all you OCD people, I apologize. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 51, and just the first two verses, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Anybody here ever tried to pursue righteousness? Uh, like maybe you, like you had kind of like a rough Saturday night and you woke up on a Sunday morning, I should probably start pursuing some righteousness. Okay, I see some very shy hand-raising, and the rest of you are liars. <laughs> Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look from the rock from which you were hewn, from which you were carved out, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Isaiah is using metaphorical language to say, I want you to go back to your roots. I want you to look at where you come from, and that's how you're going to find the answer to how you won't just pursue righteousness, but find righteousness. He expounds upon it. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. That also is a presentation of the gospel, and I'll unpack that for us a little bit later uh, in the message. The title of today's message is this, and maybe you want to write it down so you can refer back to it later. Uh, it was Jesus all along. It was Jesus, God's plan all along. It's always been Jesus. Let's begin today by just uh, getting in alignment together about one simple fact. Here's a simple fact that I think we need to agree upon before we can jump into this message. This is a simple fact. It's that the more you get to know somebody, the more time that you spend with them, the more likely you are uh, going to be able to predict how they are going to respond in any given circumstance, how they're going to act, what they're going to say. Maybe you're here today and you're with like one of your closest friends in all the world, or maybe you're here with your husband or your wife, and if you're in that boat, like you're here and you're sitting next to somebody that you've been with for a really long time, chances are that when something happens in life, you're pretty certain about what they're going to do, what they're going to say, in response to that circumstance. Like Nicole and I, like I said, married 12 years now. When something goes on, I know exactly, not just how she's going to, I almost know the words that are going to come out of her mouth in response to something that just took place right in front of us. Anybody ever had that experience? We would call that, we would describe that uh, as, a, as knowing somebody's character. That's what that is. And knowing somebody's character is actually a really good tell for how they're going to act. In life, Somebody's character is a pretty good indication of what they're going to do next when some kind of circumstance 
arises. In fact, this is so true that when it doesn't happen, we've actually developed phrases to describe that phenomenon. Like we call it acting out of character. Or we might say to the person, hey, that's not like you. Now, I don't want to belabor that point any further than I need to, other than just to draw out a couple of things from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 this morning that Paul is letting us know about the character of God. In fact, there's two things that Paul says you can know about God's character from that first verse that we read. Number one, that God is a promise-making God. That's what Paul says, God has promises. Evidently, he is a God who makes promises. It's in his nature, it's in his character to make promises. Number two, that God is a promise-keeping God. In fact, if you meditate upon 2 Corinthians 1.20, one of the conclusions that you will have to draw is that when it comes to God's track record for keeping promises, it is perfect. That God is 10 for 10. He never misses when it comes to fulfilling his promises to us. So we learn that God makes promises and that God keeps promises. And when he does that, he is acting in accordance with his character. And God never acts outside of his character. In other words, if you are in relationship with the Lord, you'll never have this moment. Huh, God, that's not like you. Rather, what I've found now in years of journeying with Jesus, what I've found is I have a whole heap of moments. Ah, that's just like God, right? When you maybe get down to the wire and you're in a really hairy circumstance and things aren't going your way and then all of a sudden with no reasonable explanation it turns in your favor, you can step back and say, wow, it is just like God to intervene himself into my circumstance. Or maybe God does not deliver you out of that painful situation and yet God has a plan for it and on the back side of it, you can look back and go, well, God used that not only for his glory, but for my good, and maybe even the good of those around me. And you can say, wow, it's just like God to repurpose the things that I go through. Just yesterday, I heard such an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness. There's a young woman who goes to uh, my friend's church in New York City, C3 NYC. Earlier this year, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer like terminal level cancer. A friend of mine, his wife went through cancer a few years ago. He was telling me when you get diagnosed with stage four cancer, they give you the treatment plan, but at the same time, they tell you about your, your impending hospice care because it's almost a foregone conclusion that this is not gonna end in life. She got diagnosed with stage four cancer this year. Back in August, she decides, I'm gonna fly to this church. Now, I love this story because to me, it just speaks of faith. This woman didn't wanna accept her diagnosis. She wanted to step out in faith and just see, maybe God wants to intervene in the circumstance. So she flew from New York to Phoenix, Arizona, and she went to the church of a man uh, named Michael Maiden. In fact, we've had Michael Maiden in our church a couple of times. Beautiful man, great prophetic uh, and healing anointing upon him. Hello. And she, <clears throat> I'm glad that's a Nerf gun. Okay. <clears throat> you never know these days. All right, so <clears throat> awkward joke. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> so she goes to Mike Maiden's church in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, Mike Maiden prays over her and prophesies over her and says that she's going to be healed of this cancer. 
A couple of months go by. This week, she goes to the doctor. She gets scanned. She gets a phone call the next day to come into the office. The doctor said that the cancer has literally, what's the word? Dissolved. The the doctor said the cancer has dissolved from your body, and she is cancer-free. Friends, we serve a miracle-working, almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor. The most amazing, she posted this like 15-minute video in her Instagram just talking about the experience. She's like weeping the whole way through because she can't even really fathom what God has done in her. But even just her revelation of talking about God's faithfulness, whether he healed her or not, was the most mature, most wonderful thing. I watched that video, and I, you know, I used to respond to stories like that, and I go, man, unbelievable. You know what I do now? I respond, I go, you know what? That's just like God. All throughout the Old Testament, there are tons and tons of promises that God makes to his people that essentially set up the New Testament to have all of these moments where the people who are experiencing the fruition of God's promises be able to have that experience and go, wow, that's just like God. Many of those promises in the Old Testament are in this book called Isaiah. Uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. And we read uh, at least the first part of what is about God is about to launch into some promises in Isaiah 51. But first he tells them how he wants them to respond to the, the gift, the goodness that he's about to bring into their life. And it's the response that you and I need to grab a hold of today. But in order to really understand what Isaiah is prophesying and the promises that he's delivering, we first have to understand the backdrop to Israel's story. Because if you don't have the backdrop, then you won't know the context and none of it will really have the weight that it really has. Now, not incidentally, the backdrop to Israel's story begins with a promise as well. Now, I need to launch into here like a seven-minute history lesson about the nation of Israel. So if you like history, you're going to love this. If you don't like history, you're going to love this. It's going to be awesome. I just want to make sure you stay with me because we've got to be all on the same page here to really understand the weight of what God is saying here in Isaiah chapter 51. It begins with a promise that God makes to a man named Abraham. Show of hands, this is an easy one. Even if you only go to church once every 10 years, who knows who Abraham is, okay? We all probably know who Abraham is, and we probably are all somewhat familiar with the promise that God makes to him, even if it's only in Sunday school format song, right? Like Father Abraham had many sons and many Well done. So we're all, and if you weren't, now you're familiar. That Father Abraham many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. God shows up in this man named Abraham's life, and he makes him a promise. Abraham's old. His wife is old as well. They've been unable to have children. And God says, not only am I going to bring forth a son from you, I'm going to bring a whole lineage of people from you. And that lineage of people is going to be a nation. That nation will be called Israel. And God says, I will use that nation to bring blessing to the entire world. He literally says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, as with every promise, you have to know the context surrounding the promise. Because promises derive their value from the circumstances in which they were made. God makes that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. 
Genesis 1 through 11 is essentially one consecutive story of how we keep screwing it up, how God's faithful to us, but we're unfaithful to him. In fact, not only do we rebel against our maker, but we do horrible things to one another. And so God says, I can't be in relationship with these people. Biblical scholars would use the word disinherit, that God had to disinherit the nations. And there's about 101 different theological themes that we could talk about in those 11 chapters alone. But just suffice it to say today that we were in a bad way and that God had a plan to overcome our brokenness. God had a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. And when you flip over from Genesis 11 into Genesis 12, now you have the context for the promise that God makes to Abraham that I'm going to bring forth from you a nation. And through that nation, all the nations, all the families of the earth that God just had to disinherit, it wasn't because he didn't love them, but it's because he needed to have a plan to re-inherit them, to bring them into blessing, to bring them into salvation. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and the descendants of those 12 sons are who become the nation of Israel. God's family. And this family of gods has a God-given purpose from their very inception. That They are to be a people who are uniquely faithful to God, and they are to be a light unto all the other nations and invite them into God's blessing. Now, Israel's reasons for agreeing with God in this purpose and for taking God up on these promises are, are pretty much without number. I mean, their very inception as a nation begins with God emancipating them out of 400 years of Egyptian, Egyptian slavery. And he miraculously delivers them by using this man named Moses. And Moses confronts the Egyptian pharaoh and he's forced to let the Israelites go and, and they're, they're set free from their bondage and they pass through the Red Sea and then they're in the wilderness and then God brings them into this land that he had promised their ancestor Abraham all those centuries ago. I mean, they don't have a single reason not to trust God not to believe God, not to be faithful to God. Now, if you step back for a moment into that wilderness season, something really important happens. God makes a covenant with Israel. And in that covenant, he describes to them, here's how you're going to be my people and here's how I'm going to be your God. He describes to them the kind of faithfulness that he's looking for. And in short, what God is looking for is total and exclusive faithfulness to God. God says, I don't want you to take on any of the idolatrous worship of the surrounding nations. And I, I don't want you to participate in any of the, uh, the practices of the surrounding nations. Because so many of those practices were overwhelmingly evil. Not just by biblical standards, but even really by secular cultural standards today. The, the practices of those nations were so despicable and God said I need you to be faithful to me if you're going to be a light to them you can't participate in their darkness and God says if you will do that then I will fulfill my promise to Abraham through you to bring the nations of the world back into blessing let me just translate it into 2021 God says if you will love and serve me I will use you to change the world that's basically what God is saying like this is like beauty pageant 101 what do you want to do I want to change the world God's like great you win God's got a cosmic level significant plan for these people. And all he's asking them to do is just don't screw it up. 
and I'll use you to bring change to the nations that surround you. Conclude history lesson. Well done, people. Good job. Now, there's two major motifs that we can draw out from everything that I just said to you. Motif number one, um, Israel is meant to be God's servant. They're meant to be God's light unto the nations to reverse this curse that they're living under and bring them into blessing. Motif number two, in the scriptures that comes literally in the same train of thought as motif number one, Israel is supposed to be God's servant. Motif number two, Israel will fail to be God's servant. Israel will not be faithful the way that they're supposed to be faithful, but in fact, they will be unfaithful to God. And here's the amazing thing. God knew before he ever made this covenant with Israel, he knew that they would fail in fulfilling the purpose that, they ha that he had for them. In fact, if you look at some of God's words to Israel, while they were still in the wilderness, before they entered into the promised land, God says to them in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Why did Moses say that? Because they weren't very good at listening to him. And then down in verse 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them, Israelites, a prophet like you from among their brothers. He'll be an Israelite as well, this prophet. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak. Speak to them all that I command him. So God is accounting for Israel's failure. The reason that this future prophet would be necessary becomes abundantly clear in Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors. You're getting old. Time for you to die, Moses. And these people will soon prostitute, strong word, prostitute themselves to the foreign gods. In other words, God's married them. He's made this covenant with them. And they're going to go into this promised land. They're going to get all busy cheating on God. God the moment that they arrive. They're going to prostitute themselves these foreign gods that they are entering. They will forsake me, listen to this, and break the covenant I made with them. Catch the massive significance of that. God just made the covenant with Israel in the wilderness. And before they even set a pinky toe into the promised land, God's like, oh, and by the way, you're not going to keep it. You're going to fail in keeping this covenant that I've just made with you. And yet, God is a promise-keeping God. God said to Abraham all those generations prior, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the reason God can make that promise to Abraham while knowing that the future nation of Israel is not going to fulfill their purpose is because God always had the gospel. He always had the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ as his plan from before time even began. You see, Jesus was an Israelite. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, and he is the only totally faithful Israelite to ever live. That is, he was without sin. He lived in constant faithfulness to God the Father. In Jesus' own words, his claim in John 5, 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is essentially saying, I don't screw up. I'm totally faithful to God. And just like God's plan for Israel the faithfulness of Jesus wasn't just about resisting the bad. It was about doing the good. There's a difference between those two things. 
There's a difference between resisting a temptation to do the wrong thing and having, having the guts and having the integrity and the courage to do the right thing. Jesus' faithfulness to the Father was so perfect that he fulfilled every desire that God the Father had, even when it cost him his life. Jesus, the shape of Jesus' faithfulness to the Lord is cross-shaped. Because even when it cost him nails being driven through his hands and his feet and a spear being jabbed in his side and a crown of thorns being set on his head, Jesus said, I will be faithful to God our Father. This is God's plan for Jesus, Jesus to be the one that God said all those generations back in Deuteronomy, I will raise up one after Moses who will be like Moses. And there's something really, really significant about God's promise of another prophet like Moses. Because Moses wasn't just a prophet. Moses was the one who led a people who were literally born into slavery, he led them out into freedom. Israel had tons of prophets after Moses. But for God to say, I'm going to give you another prophet like Moses, is God foreshadowing that there was still a type of freedom that needed to be supplied, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all people. And that freedom, of course, is not just from an external oppressive force, but it's freedom from the oppressive condition of sin that comes part and parcel with the human experience. And this is precisely the kind of oppression that Jesus came to set you and I free from. In other words, Jesus didn't come to deal strictly with the fruit of the human problem. He came to deal with the root of the human problem. And in our most honest moments, even when we feel like we have it together and we feel like, you know, by comparison, this person's doing that well and I'm over here doing this well. And even in our honest moments, we would go, there's a root in me that needs healing. There's a dryness in me that needs the water of life. There's some, some thoughts that I carry and some emotions that I carry that give me permission to be maybe self-consumed or maybe for you it's self-loathing and you're, you're stuck in the sin of hating the creation that God made you to be. And so there's a root of a human condition in you. And Jesus, I mean, Moses was great, right? 400 years of slavery and Moses leads them out. And we praise God for changes in circumstances. But how much greater is it when a Messiah can come and he can deal with the problem that is within? So that he can do what the New Testament describes. He can literally, well, Jesus says it this way, with me, you'll be born again. You will be made a new creation, a brand new person. And I will bring you into the family of God that it consists of redeemed people. Not yet perfect people, but through the power of God's spirit in us, in the church, being sanctified, being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, coming into the fullness of the knowledge of the Son. Becoming more like him 
admitting our faults, walking in humility, loving the Lord the best we can, helping one another grow and experiencing all that God has for us. This is what Jesus came to do in humanity is heart level surgery. And it's what makes him the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in you indeed all the families of the earth will be blessed with salvation because Jesus sets free not simply from circumstance, he sets free from sin. This is what makes the apostle Paul, whose own response to the gospel, by the way, was initially total rejection, but later he surveys the redemptive historical plan of God culminating in Christ Jesus and can only draw one conclusion that every promise of God is indeed yes in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as an Israelite, somebody, Paul knew the scriptures backwards and forwards and inside out. When he says that statement in 2 Corinthians, he's saying something very powerful. What he's saying is, hey, when it comes to all the promises of God, all through Throughout these scriptures, I want you to know that it has always been Jesus all along. When it comes to God's purpose for Israel, it's been Jesus all along. When it comes to God's redemptive plan for humanity, it has indeed been Jesus. We thought it was about a nation. We thought it was about the law. We thought it was about our works. And God says, no, from before the beginning of time, it's always been about my son. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about his faithfulness where you fell short he succeeded and in him now you can have life that's the gospel and all of this sounds like a really tall order right like everybody who says ah, I don't know that sounds like a bit much for one person to achieve they'd be right and as the as the scriptural story proceeds throughout the Old Testament one of the things that starts to come clear is that this Messiah will not well let's just say it this way he'll be more than human he won't be a prophet quite like Moses was a prophet. He won't be a servant quite like the nation of Israel was meant to be a servant. He would be God himself taking on human flesh and coming as the embodiment of Israel to accomplish what the nation could not to be. A, what did Jesus say? I am the light of the world because he came to be a light unto the nations that they could be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son and step into the light of God and receive the blessing of being in God's family. This is where Isaiah's prophecies come front and center, along, by the way, with lots and lots of Hebrew scriptures. But Isaiah prophesied at length about this faithful servant, a messianic figure who would fulfill all God's purpose for Israel. And in Isaiah's prophecies, the divine quality of this Messiah starts to shine through. Nicole quoted it earlier in Isaiah 9-6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Okay, I can get on board with that. That sounds like a messianic king. Someone's going to help us get back on track. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, sounds like a big deal. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are no ordinary titles for a prophet like Moses, just a man. I think of Isaiah Chapter 11, the virgin shall conceive a, si a child, give birth to a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this messianic figure that Isaiah prophesies about? And there are, there are so many different moments that we could look at in the Old Testament to demonstrate that when it came to God's plan, it was always going to be Jesus. But 
quite honestly, you don't need a prophecy. All you need to do is think about the fact that God had a plan to use Israel and had the foreknowledge that Israel would be unfaithful in that plan. Because if Israel could not be perfectly faithful to God, then who could be? What person, what group of people could we find that would say, yep, I can do everything that God has purposed me to do. I can hit a 10 out of 10. I can, I can nail this plan that God has for me. We couldn't find a person. We couldn't find a group of people. There's not a nation in the world that could say, yep, I've got what it takes to be what God is looking for. When you consider the details of God's plan and his providence, now he looked across the ages and, and unraveled this plan century by century, you realize that the Messiah always had to be divine. That it always had to be Jesus. Israel was literally chosen by God to be his nation before there was even one of them. You don't get better pedigree than that. And they still fell so far short. Because perfect faithfulness to God, for us humans, is just not possible. In fact, if we were to be really honest, we would say that perfect faithfulness to one another which is kind of a lower standard than being faithful to God. Not even that is really within our grasp. And when we're honest, we recognize that we just don't have the capacity to obtain it. Isaiah would say it like this in chapter 53 and verse 6. He said, all we, and he's including himself in this all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all done our own thing. We haven't woken up every day and said, God, what do you want from me today? We wake up most days and goes, here's what I want to do. And oftentimes what we want to do doesn't factor in how that maybe affects other people. Sometimes we deliberately want to do the wrong thing because it makes us feel empowered, makes us feel bigger when we understand and know quite well that that makes somebody else feel smaller. Jesus' message to Israel when he began preaching during his 30th year of life, essentially his message to Israel is that you need saving just as much as the people you think need saving need saving. And that was really tough medicine for them because nobody likes to hear that not even their best efforts are enough to reach a particular standard and accomplish a particular purpose. And so many of the Jews rejected Jesus. But if you listen to Jesus' invitation and you lay down your pride, instead of hearing accusation, you will hear good news. Because while the Israelites were so consumed, so blinded by their misled desire to achieve salvation, Jesus is standing there saying, you can actually just receive it. You can have it as the free gift that I came to give you if you just put your trust in me, if you believe my character, if you believe my promises. Jesus claimed to be that divine messianic figure that Isaiah prophesied, and they killed him for that. And Jesus' earliest followers continued to announce that claim, that this is indeed the Son of God. In fact, now he's not uh, just come to us in human form, but he's been resurrected from the dead as well. And they were killed, many of them, for refusing to renounce that claim. And they were willing to undertake that burden because even their Lord was killed for making the claim, but he did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day, and in him we all have the promise of resurrection life who put our faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. 
In other words, when I say that God accounted for Israel's failure in his plan to bring salvation to humanity, I mean it down to the very last minute. The second that the, the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified, God was in that plan because they were merely handing him over to the death that God had ordained before time began to be the cleansing sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of all of our sins and to be the precursor of the event called the resurrection which makes Jesus the Lord, just like we sang in that song, Lord of everything, over everything. He's over death, he's over shame, he's over anxiety, he's over depression, he's over sickness, he's over disease, he's over divorce, he's over your brokenness, he's over every single failure that we have committed. Now Jesus is the Lord and we have received salvation in him. And all you and I have to do is just receive it. The band can come, I'm gonna close up. This message now. When you think about, when you think about Israel's rejection of, of the Lord, and you really take a moment, what, where you will land is instead of going, wow, they were silly, really where you'll land is you'll go, that sounds kind of like me. Because their rejection of Jesus is just a picture of our human tendency when it comes to the gospel, isn't it? None of our human nature hears the gospel and go, yep, that makes total sense. Right? God came, lived, died. He let people kill him. And then he rose again so that, uh, so that it's not up to me and I can just put my trust. Our human nature doesn't get on board with that. Why? Because we want to try. And we, like the Israelites, we want to achieve salvation. Or maybe for you, you know, salvation is kind of religious language. Uh, let's use another word. It's not quite the same. But maybe you think that you can achieve a life of true significance on your own. And so you're caught up and you're, you know, you're building the business and you're growing the career. And you, you got the relationships and you're maybe gaining the money and the car. Whatever it is, you know, you're perfecting your craft. You're growing in your creativity. And you have successes. And maybe you're doing really, really well. But... I've had seasons in life, friends, where I've been doing really, really well. In fact, I'm a pastor, right? So for me, doing really well is like when this is going really well. And I have the same insecurities that you have. And I feel the same temptations that you do to find my identity in the success of the church that I get to lead. And I can tell you God's honest truth. On my greatest Sundays, in the greatest sermons, in the best moments where I get done with this gathering, wow, that was literally perfect. History tells me that I will go home and I will get depressed because it didn't provide the significance that I was looking for it to provide. You close the deal. You got the part. I mean, what is it? Whether we're talking salvation or significance, friends, you need to know that apart from God, we can't have it. Nor can we come to God and say, God, I, I'm, on, I'm with you, but I want to do it my way. God's like, well, I don't work that way. Because I let you try your way for like thousands of years, and your way sucks. <laughs> Jesus said it like this, um, come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden. The message version says, uh, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. <laughs> That's the invitation of the gospel. And I can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit right now in this room. And he's ministering to the hearts of people who 
you need the water of life. And when we, when we don't say, God, I'm with you, and we keep doing it our way, ultimately where that leads is it leads to hopelessness. Because we have this long list of failures and we keep picking ourselves up and trying again. But then eventually you get to the place that I got where you stop believing your own pep talks. Anybody? And so you try to give yourself a pep talk and then the other is like, eh, not this time, sorry. And ultimately that leads to hopelessness. Then it leads to meaninglessness, which then just compounds the hopelessness. It's called nihilism. And I don't know if you noticed, but it's very popular right now in our culture. And honestly, any nihilist in the culture is only being intellectually honest because nihilism is the logical conclusion of life devoid of God. Because without God, we are void. St. Augustine, hundreds of years ago, said it even better than I could ever say it. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Here's the most amazing part. All God requires of you to receive this good news is the exact same thing that he required of Abraham. And that brings us full circle back to that first promise. In you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because if that promise is yes in Christ Jesus, then that's the key right there. That's our salvation. So how do we get it? How do we access the promise? Isaiah, Isaiah steps on pages of Jewish history and he says in chapter 51 verses 1 through 2 listen to me you who pursue righteousness you who seek the Lord look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug what do you mean look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him we say oh God what did Abraham do if I'm looking to Abraham how was, if I'm pursuing righteousness, what did Abraham do? Look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And he, God, counted Abraham's belief, not his performance, not his good works, not his perfection. He counted Abraham's belief to him as righteousness. Listen to me, you who want to pursue righteousness. How do I do it? Just do what Abraham did and just believe God, don't just believe the promise, believe the character of the God who always acts in accordance with his promise, who never acts out of character, who never does anything that's not like who he is. And God takes your belief and he counts it to you as righteousness. Paul, the apostle, one of the greatest theological minds that history has ever known in the letter to the Galatians chapter 3 verses 5 through 9, he asked the church because they started in faith but they, they got into the flesh. They started depending upon their own abilities, certain laws and ordinances. If they do this, God will be pleased with them. And Paul says, oh. he literally asks this question, who has bewitched you? What curse have you fallen under that you have become, become so blinded to the good news of the gospel that it's never been about works, it's been about faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He asks this question, does he who supplies the spirit that is the Holy Spirit to you and he who works miracles among you, much like the miracle that I described to you of that young lady getting healed of cancer, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that is, count righteous, the Gentiles, the non-Jews by faith, preached the gospel thousands of years beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, 
the man of faith. Paul can get a little wordy sometimes. Jesus does a nice job of summing it up perfectly in John 6, 29. He says to his audience, this is the work of God. When the Son of God says, this is the work of God, you should pay attention. This is what God wants you to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Stop trying to climb the mountain. He already came down. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.